0: Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again thank you for your grace, for your love, for your truth. We ask that your spirit will join us today, enlighten our minds, draw us closer to you and your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And just before we get to the lesson, one of our online listeners, Alan Weber, emailed a response to Lesson 7 that we did a couple of weeks ago. And he said, based on your excellent discussion of the Ellen White quote from Great Controversy 539-40 uh, to 40, in the Friday section of that lesson, if you have your quarterly, that quote is there. We're going to read it in a second. I attempted to paraphrase that. Uh, I have attached it to the email. One of my recurring questions is why... Uh, it has taken so long to restore God's reputation. If the great controversy had been written uh, in the concept of design law instead of making it uh, so easy to support penal substitution theology, or if the interpretation of the sanctuary symbols had been more explicitly explained so the Jews didn't think salvation came from ritual, would things have moved along faster? I pray for your ministry often. Have, uh, Have a great evening. Okay. So, before we get to his paraphrase, I want to share what he did. I thought it was quite nicely done. What do you think of his questions of, well, if it wasn't in such symbolic language, if it it didn't speak about so much law all the time, wouldn't it have been easier for the gospel message to go forward? You hear the question? Well? It was timeless. So what's the assumption in the question? There's an assumption in the question. That it would have been easier. God made a mistake. God made a mistake, it would have been easier. No, the the base assumption is that it wasn't actually presented in the other way first. That's the base assumption, that it wasn't presented in the design, law, reality of things first. That's the assumption, isn't it? Here's a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 364. If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tablets of stone. And had the people practiced the principles here that were principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. So the, the base assumption I'm challenging in the question. See, we, you know, we all do this because we pick up where we stand in the flow and the history of time and our understanding is the best we can grasp with our point of time. So our point of reference is, is what we're digging ourselves out of. And so there's an assumption that's the way it's always been. This paragraph suggests that's not how it was originally given. It was originally given, and it's read, I imagine that God, speaking to Adam and Eve in Eden, was speaking quite clearly to them prior to the fall, explaining how reality works. But, what I hear happening was that after sin, the human being became more and more corrupt with misunderstanding, with lies, with selfishness, with sin, further and further away from understanding God's reality. And so God stepped down and began to dumb down the message to meet people on their level of comprehension. Eventually dealing with slaves in Egypt who are operating at level one moral development, we've talked about before, reward and punishment. And at level one, you have to be powerful, and the powerful one is the one who can meet out the punishment and, and beat up everybody else. And so we worship the powerful one, level one, reward and punishment. And so God dumbs it down for them, and then to lead them back out of that solely over time, God has been wanting us to come back to level seven, friends of God. This is how I understand it. So I, I challenge the, you know, it's, it's kind of like God is, is made out to be beautiful here, as you understand this, like a parent who speaks differently to their 2-year-old, to their 8-year-old, to their 15-year-old, to their 35-year-old. The parent speaks differently because their comprehension levels are different, and God speaks to people at all their different levels, trying to enlighten them as best they're able to comprehend. Yes? So... If we expect to be on level four, for example, or five, should we go back and read the Old Testament and try to learn from it? Sure. Absolutely. And so, so another question, why is the, then the Bible written sometimes very difficult to understand or comprehend? Why are math textbooks written sometimes difficult to understand or comprehend? Are they? Have you ever read a math textbook and found it difficult to understand and comprehend some of the problems in there? That's a tough one. Man, that's a a difficult one. Why aren't math textbooks just lists of answers? Here's all the answers. What happens if I get all the answers? I memorize the answers, I get the exam, and I I put down the answers so I get all the answers right. Do you know how to do math? No. No. Okay. God doesn't want people to memorize the right answers. He wants people to understand reality. How reality works, how he built reality works, what the problem of sin actually is. Why is it wrong to go against his designs, what we call his laws, how he's constructed reality work? What's the consequence for doing that? So we become mature people, Hebrews 5.14, who've developed the ability through practice to discern right from wrong. That's why it's written, for you to wrestle through those difficult Just like you're wrestling through a math problem. So you can see, oh, oh, I see that. And why you wrestle, it helps you grow. Helps you develop capacities. You wouldn't develop capacities. And one of the corruptions, I will tell you, in our society and in our churches is that we don't teach... Critical reasoning, here's evidence. Let's reason through the evidences and draw conclusions. We don't teach it. We teach indoctrination. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what the what what the conclusions are. So we give a list of twenty eight fundamentals in church or at school. We give philosophical perspectives like we teach you know godless origins and evolution, but we won't allow evidence to come in that would refute those beliefs, and we indoctrinate this is what it means, and so kids don't question, they're just told what to believe, and they don't develop critical reasoning. And so our challenge really is to present truth and love in complex ways so people can reason through and come to their own conclusion. And that's what Alan did here. So let me read the quote from Great Controversy 539 and then his paraphrase and we went through in detail this quote last week so we're not going to do that again this week if you remember it took us like 40 minutes to go through this quote but uh, he just paraphrases it very quickly God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law those who flatter themselves that he is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look at the cross of Calvary the death of the spotless son of God testifies that the wages of sin is death that every violation of God's law must receive its just retribution Christ the sinless became sin for, for man he bore the guilt of transgression and the hiding of the Father's face until his heart was broken and his life crushed out. All this sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. In no other way could man be freed from the penalty of sin. Every soul that refuses to become a partaker of the atonement provided at such cost must bear in his own person the guilt and punishment of transgression. Remember, we read that and you go, But then we actually read what followed. The explanation of how this is simply to, this is simply the outworking of reality. That's all it is. There's no imperialisticness. God isn't using his power to inflict any of this. This is just what happens if you decide to break the laws upon which God built life to operate upon and refuse to let him set you right or put you back in harmony. Here's the paraphrase. The Bible is an inspired history of how God deals with his children. It is conclusive, crucial, convincing proof of what God's punishment is, what He does, uh, and what He does to those who refuse to accept the way He designed reality. Some excuse the damage they inflict on themselves and others, thinking God's leniency and pity will let him exempt them from the reality of consequences. They have ignored the evidence of Jesus' death on the cross. He died even though he was perfect. Separated from his father by his own choice to save humanity, he demonstrated that uh, sin pays its wage. His death was a testimony that, his li- that life is impossible outside God's design. No exceptions. God need not impose an external punishment because the effect of violating a principle of design is intrinsic to that principle and there is no way to outwit the principle elude the consequence or undo the damage. Christ lived a perfect uh, in perfect harmony with God's design for him, but by willingly choosing the fate of humanity which was mostly reject uh, which has mostly rejected God's design for us, he experienced the result of our choice, the separation from God. That accompanies that choice, but for Christ, the separation was heartbreaking, crushing out his life. This sacrifice made by Jesus and his Father was so that uh, was so those too fearful to trust God could trust again. God's power to heal is unlimited, but will do no good in a universe designed in a circle of love unless we trust the remedy. If a heart is untouched by God's offer to heal, if an individual is not reconciled to trust our God when it costs so much to disprove Satan's accusations, God will not intervene to force that person's will. The responsibility and the consequences of rejecting his design for for us will inevitably lead to extinction because life is only possible by voluntary connection to our Creator. Now, did you hear that paraphrase, how he rewrote the whole thing? Getting the true meaning. See, I want to commend Alan for doing this. This is the type of critical reasoning. When you read some of this stuff, you got to reason back through and connect it to the laws that God has revealed His universe operates upon. So I, I think it's it's healthy for us all to do this. James, uh, our Sabbath, our memory verse is from James one twenty seven. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What is being advocated here? What do you hear being advocated, being promoted? Do you hear that this is talking about providing financial support? Donations? It's talking about visiting. It's talking about relationship building. With people who find themselves most likely to be lonely, isolated, and disconnected from society. Connect, be a bridge, bring people into community. Isn't that what it's talking about here? Circle of love stuff. And Why is he, why is he advocating for this bu- bridge building rather than simply donating to the local orphanage? What is the biggest impact on changing people? Isn't it connecting with people? Relationship with people? And what would be the purpose of visiting them? What's the purpose? What's the goal in the visitation? Well, get your you know little little track and take over and knock on the door on Sabbath afternoon and leave them their track. Is that the goal? Visit for ingathering. Well, it does change us to do it. But what's the purpose? Is the is the purpose to visit for, for primarily to change us? Is that the reason? but it certainly does. To, yes, it's to connect with them as people, to let them know that they are valued as people. Uh, who is to do the visiting? How much visiting is enough? How many do we have to visit each week to fulfill this? If, if Should a pastor, parentheses, or any person visit the orphan and widow while neglecting their own family. No, no. That's never happened, has it? Pastors so busy doing the visitation, they actually don't take time with their own kids. Hmm. So if they don't visit because they prioritize time with their kids, are they then violating the biblical principles? Their kids need connection too. Ah, and where's their first priority? To their own. so there has to I'm just pointing out it's not, a, it's not a competition either or it's a balance it's a balance we have to balance these things and you're a, we are finite beings this is the point finite beings have limited resources limited money limited energy limited time we have limited resources there's not one person in this room that can meet the needs of every human being on planet earth you can't do it. You can't visit every orphan. You can't visit every You can't do it. So you have to find that balance. And you have to prioritize. What are the biggest priorities in your life? These are, these are tough decisions. That's, every person should be fully persuaded. I'm not here to tell you how, where the balance is, but you have to find that balance. Here's another uh, one of the design laws we talk. We talk about the law of exertion a lot. If you uh, don't, if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it because if you don't use it, you lose it, characterologically as well as physiologically. But the corollary of that is the law of restoration. As a finite being, once you've expended a resource, you must rest and recover before you have more to expend. And one of the devil's strategies, he's always working to get us to violate God's laws. Because when we violate God's laws, his design protocols, how life works, it damages us. And so good-hearted people, if he can't get you to choose evil, if he can't get you to neglect duty and responsibility... Then he will overburden you with too many good things so that you don't set boundaries and you have too much to do. You don't rest and recover. You don't say no. Jesus, as a human being, left the needy masses repeatedly to go rest. One of the first priorities in doing that as a, as a caregiver, whether you're a family you're providing care for, is the health of the caregiver. If you don't maintain your health and wellness, you burn out and you become a patient. And so finding what that reasonable necessities are. So many hours of sleep each night, your body must have. So much food your body needs. You need some exercise, but you also need Sabbath rest. Not a legal obligation. You need that decompression time where you can step away from the burdens and unwind and relax and rejuvenate and reconnect and renew yourself. You need that. okay? And one of the devil's tricks is to get people to do so many good things that they never actually set the balance in their life. So one of the points of making is the balance. Now, in countries like the United States, Canada, European Union, do widows stand in a different place in these societies than widows stood in ancient Israel? How would widows be different in society today than they were in ancient Israel? Depending on the government instead of their neighbors, and church members, Yeah. Yeah, so in ancient Israel, who owned property? The men owned the property, primarily. So oftentimes without a man, the woman wouldn't have an income, wouldn't have sustenance, wouldn't have a place to live, would be frequently homeless or in a hovel. And so today in society, many widows have a home, have a retirement or social security check. Uh, some have life insurance that has put money in. for So it's not that I'm suggesting that there's not needs, but the needs may be different needs. And primarily, I think, much of the need is really the connection. Letting the widow and the orphan know that they're valuable as people and connecting them with the body. What does it mean to keep oneself unspotted from the world? Unspotted from the world. Other versions say uncorrupted or unpolluted by the world. What would that mean to be uncorrupted or unpolluted? Can you define what the pollution of the world is? Selfishness. Selfishness, lies. These are the core. These are the root, too. Lies and selfishness. And then how do lies and selfishness practice in treating other people? Do they practice truth and love and leaving people free? Or lies to get more ahead and coerce and manipulate others? That's how the world practices. So... Some of the biggest lies are the ones that are sown with pieces of truth. Taking a truth and then using that truth to promote a falsehood. I won't give you examples right now. I'll just put the idea out there. You watch for them. You only have to actually go on the first page of any major you know, media outlet on the internet and you will see a truth being used to promote a lie. It's constantly being done if you have that discernment. The mature of those again who have developed by practice that ability to discern right from wrong. If we are not polluted by the world's methods of coercion and manipulation, will we try to take control of government to pass laws to force other people who are not persuaded to our views to practice our views? Will we do that if we're if we're corrupted by the by the world? But if we're not corrupted by the world, we won't do that. We'll come back to that Sunday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, After Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the group of believers grew rapidly and created an early church, a new kind of community among the followers of Jesus, and initially led to uh, his original disciples. However, this new community was not just something that they made up among themselves. Rather, it was built on the teachings and ministry of Jesus and drew on the long history of the Hebrew Scriptures and Prophets. Question for you. What made this new Christian community, apostolic first century church community, different from the Jewish community of the first century and prior, and later different from Islam? Well, I'm going to ask some questions here. Do all three, Christianity, New Testament Christianity, that's where we're going to focus first, New Testament Christianity, we'll get to later Christianity in a moment, but New Testament Christianity and Judaism of the first century and Islam later, Do all three believe in God? Do all three believe in a creator God? Do all three believe that the scriptures are inspired by God? Do all three believe God sent prophets to give messages through the scriptures? Do all three believe human beings are fallen into sin and need saving by God? Do all three believe God has a law? Do all three believe sin is breaking God's law? So what's the difference? I'm going to tell you, do all three, apostolic church, Judaism in the first century, and today too, Islam, see see God's law in the same way. This is the difference, guys. It always comes back to the question of law. How did the Jews in Christ's day, and even today, see God's law? Look Look at the narrative between Jesus and the Pharisees over and over. How did they see God's law? How did it function? Imperialistically. okay. Remember the difference between design law, laws of health, laws of physics, laws of gravity, laws upon which reality are built, including the moral laws, versus what we do. We make up rules that have no inherent consequences. We have to use power and authority to enforce or punish rule breakers. That's human way of doing law. How did the Jews in Christ, day see God's law? As design protocols of reality or Imperial rules. Imperial rules. And Christ kept breaking their, their interpretations of those rules constantly to put people in harmony with the design law. And they hated it. And they killed him for it. And accused him of being a lawbreaker. What did the New Testament church teach about law? Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. That's the law of liberty. Keep people free. Don't coerce. Don't punish. Uh, no, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on to actually cite the, the commandments of not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not covet. Why? Because when you love people, I promise, when you love somebody really, you won't kill them. You won't steal from them. You won't cheat them. You won't be coveting what they have. You'll celebrate their uh, accomplishments when you love people. Therefore, love is fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or Jesus said that all law hangs on love for God and love for your neighbor. This is what the New Testament church taught. A principle, a protocol upon life. It's not rules. Well, you might say, wait a second now. Acts 15. Don't forget Acts 15. Give him a list of rules, Acts 15. Remember what they said in Acts 15? The council met. What are we going to cry the Gentiles to do? Here it is, here it is. This is uh, James uh, in Acts 15, 19 and 20. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them and telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Rules? Oh, got a system of rules? See, yep, yep, they do rules too. Just put those rules out of people. Or design law made practical. Well, this is from my book, The God Shaped Heart. Just a little section out of it. These instructions are not imposed rules, but are wisdom of design law. Food polluted by idols. An idol cannot change the nutritional quality of the food. Therefore, eating food offered to idols does not pollute the body. But Paul is making it clear from Romans chapter. Uh, Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 14. The issue they were addressing is the design law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. This is called modeling in modern psychiatry. What we believe has power over us. Truth heals and sets free while lies damage and enslave. So don't let your minds become contaminated or polluted by giving credence to the idols. Thus don't eat foods that are polluted with the idea it is in a bounty given to you by idols. This is design law. Don't believe lies. That's why he has great faith can eat anything. Him has weak faith, he don't only vegetables. Because the meat they were talking about was meat that came from a sacrifice that was sacrificed to an idol. And those with weak faith would be afraid that if they ate the meat, now the idol has power over them. Thus they become polluted by the sacrifice. Not nutritionally, in their mind. This is design law. What about sexual morality? God designed relationships to operate upon love and trust. When sexual intimacy occurs between husband and wife, as God designed, healthy bonding occurs. The brain actually rewires, and reward circuits are heightened to for one's spouse. This is design law, how our biology is actually built to work. But deviating from this design is damaging to our minds, bodies, and relationships. It is a violation of design law, altering brain circuitry, inflaming selfishness, fear circuits, and obstructing healing of mind and character. Again, design law. And then meat from strangled animals or blood violates the laws of health. Humans are not designed to eat meat, and blood carries waste products, stress hormones, various inflammatory factors. Eating raw meat and drinking blood increases disease risk, and when the body is unhealthy, the mind is compromised. The New Testament church rejected imperialism and imposed law and focused instead on living in harmony with God's design law, how he construct reality to operate. That's the big difference, guys. New Testament Christianity was not imperial. Judaism had been corrupted with this idea of imperial law. And what about Islam? By the way, the New Testament Church, on design law, what they focus on? On character development, circumcision of the heart rather than the body, writing the law on the heart and mind, not an adherence to dogma, codes of conduct, or ritualistic behavior. Thus, anyone who accepted Jesus and was transformed in character became part of the Christian family. But Judaism requires tribal affiliation and adherence to a list of ritualistic rules. Islam requires ritualistic adherence to rules and is intolerant of divergent views seeking to suppress opposing ideas and the enforcement of their laws. Some get confused when I say this because they look around in their community and they find people in these different um, um, cultures, and they will say, well, that person is really kind and gracious and and, and and respecting of other people. Yeah, you'll find people. But let me ask you this. What do you think would happen in a predominantly Christian country like America if someone publicly burned a Bible or mocked Jesus like the artist a few years back who put a crucified Jesus in a jar of his own urine? You remember that? What would happen in our country if this happened? Verbal condemnation by religious leaders. That's what would happen. They would condemn it. But they would leave them free to do it. What do you think would happen in a predominantly Muslim country today if someone publicly burned a Koran? Or took an image of Muhammad and put it in urine? Do you think it would just be verbal condemnation if people would be left free? Or would there be riots and they would seek to kill the person who did it? Get your mind around that. That is evidence, people, evidence of a different construct of how God operates rooted in the heart of the worshiper. By beholding, we become changed. You remember um, Salman Rushdie? He's still under a death threat and has to live in hiding. He wrote the book, The Satanic Verses, uh, describing the Koran as a, a book from Satan. And for the last 25 years, he's had to live in hiding because there, there's a death warrant out for him. From the Islamic community. Do you see a different method being practiced? A different principle being practiced? See, the truth can afford to be fair, it loses nothing by close investigation. We don't fear people coming up and challenging the truth with a lie because we reveal through reality and how reality works, how it's wrong. But if your system is based on falsehood, you cannot tolerate it being challenged. You must suppress it. You must crush it under the guise of righteousness and holiness. But something happened to Christianity after the apostolic church, after the, new, after the first century, It began practicing the same authoritarian methods of coercion, imprisonment, crusades, inquisitions. What happened? How could this be? How could this church, started on the principles of Christ, clearly historically documented as not being coercive, rather die in the arena than trying to to fight battles to get your freedom, present truth and love, leaving people free? How could this gracious, other-centered, loving community be corrupted where it becomes abusive of other people? How'd that happen? One idea infected Christianity. And it's the same infection that started in heaven. If you read Ellen White's writings, she talks about how this was the issue in heaven and it will be the issue at the end of time. And it's a question over God's law. And it comes back to do you see him as creator and his laws, the laws upon which reality are built, or do you see him as an imperial dictator who makes up rules like we do? And when Constantine converted, it became orthodoxy in Christianity that God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. Eusebius, the first Christian historian, wrote, with the Roman um, monarchy has come the kingdom of God on earth. This is how Christianity began to see God runs his kingdom. System of rules with imperial authority to punish rule-breakers. And the whole world went into the dark ages, and Christianity became abusive. And that's what always happens. By beholding, we become changed. It's design law. Second paragraph talks about the importance of ministering to the poor. Why is it that there have been poor in every society throughout human history? Has any government in history been able to eliminate poverty in their society? How come there's always poor? Why has poverty not been been eliminated? Because people are selfish. People are selfish. Do some forms of government claim that they will do that? Yes. yes. Socialism and communism have claimed that they will eliminate poverty and all will be brought up to have equality uh, financially, socially, and so forth in the society. Uh, Have these methods been tried in different countries of the world historically? We have evidence of how they work. And do they work by eliminating poverty? Has it worked? No. Or in fact, every time these methods have been employed, those countries end up genociding their own people. Nazi Germany, uh, communist Russia actually killed millions more than the Germans did. China, Cuba, Nicaragua. Every time these methods are used, it ends up in genocide of their own people. Historically, that's what the history... Some people don't like this. They get offended. You said selfishness? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what happens in these forms of government. Power gets consolidated into a small group and they end up abusing people. It happens every time. That's why the founders of the United States government broke the powers up in three branches. Legislative, judicial, and administrative, or executive powers. And they broke the powers up to limit the damage any one person or group of people could do, that was that was the reason. Because they understood that there's no human government that's going to actually not become corrupted by selfishness if you give them enough power. It's always going to happen. And even with the three powers being broken up in this country, um, do uh, do we see corruption happening? Do we see abuse happening? It gets. It, it, there's checks and balances. It, it limits it somewhat. There's redress and so forth. But it's still happening. But to me, the the much more vile, it's much more vile to abuse people while claiming to be protecting them than just doing it forthrightly. See, nurses who, by their occupation, present themselves as helpers, there to assist someone to recover, but end up murdering their patients. You've you've read stories like this, that's much more vile to me. Child care workers and priests who present to protect children and teach them and help them grow that molest them. Politicians who promote socialism and communism, promising equal economic and social success to all people, only to exploit and abuse their own societies to their own advancement. This is much more vile. At least a capitalistic government tells you right up front what its goals are they're selfish. Right up front, our goals are for people to make more money. We're not here primarily for us to make your life better. We're here for everybody to fight to get ahead on their own. Get rich. Yes, I'm not here to suggest this is representing God's government. It clearly is not representing God's government. But because it's dog-eat-dog, dog. it's survival of the, of the financially fittest, it's, it's not help your neighbor, it's get ahead of your neighbor. That's what capitalism is. It's not godly. Don't anybody think I'm here promoting capitalism as God's way. I'm not. But I'm promoting the fact that it's upfront about what it's trying to do. It's honest about what its its goals are. Back to the question of caring for the poor. If all Christians gave the maximum amount of money that they could possibly afford to do every week of their life to help the poor, every Christian gave maximum amount of money they could afford every week, would that eliminate the poor and the poverty in this world? No. Why not? Money's not the issue. Oh, she says money is not the issue. You are clearly a heretic. <laughs> Everybody knows if we could just spend more money on the problem, it fixes it. That's the American way. More money, more money, more money, and we'll fix the problem. More money, you're right. More money will not fix the problem, because the problem is really not ultimately about money. Does this mean, though, we should ignore the poor and not minister to help them? Because no matter how much money we throw at it, they'll still be poor. So we should ignore it? So what is the right action to take towards the poor and the needy? Well, I found a couple of quotes out of a book you might have heard of called Councils to the Church. I found these quite interesting. First is page 284. There are two classes of poor whom we always have within our borders. Those who ruin themselves by their own independent course of action and continue their transgression, and those who, for the true sake, have been brought into straitened circumstances. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then toward both these classes we shall do the right thing under the guidance and counsel of sound wisdom. Pause right there. Is this suggesting that perhaps we are to think about how we interact and deal? The the circumstances of a person in poverty? How it came to be that they're poor? That we're to think about what is necessary in our response? That the help provided may vary depending on how a person in need became to be in need. Is that, is that suggesting that idea? Let's keep going with the quote. There, are, there is no question in regard to the Lord's poor. They are to be helped in every case where it will be for their benefit. Whoa, is that a clarifier? Does this imply that there are times when helping someone might not be for their benefit, even though they're in need? Can you think of an example of someone in need that to give them some help would actually not be for their benefit? Third world country. Third world country. Just dumping money into into governments in third worlds that don't actually help their people with it. Okay? How about the prodigal son? Was the father still a wealthy man? Mm-hmm. How come the father didn't send an agent to put the boy up in a Motel 6 and give him pizza from Pizza Hut every day? Mm-hmm. He could have done that. Why didn't he? What was the boy likely to think? I'm getting by. It's not so bad here. He had to hit what some call rock bottom. And when he hit rock bottom, it says in the pig slop, eating the pig food, it says he came to his senses and realized it was better back home with dad. There's an example of helping somebody would have just kept them from repenting and turning and going home to the healthier way. Keep on with the quote. God wants his people to reveal to a sinful world that he has not left them to perish. Special pains should be taken to help those who for the true sake are cast out from their homes and are obliged to suffer. The poor among God's people must not be left without provision for their wants. Some way must be found whereby they may obtain a livelihood. Ooh, she just blew it right then. Did you notice what she said? that they must be found a way to be employed, a livelihood where they can make their own way in the world, not just give a handout to somebody in need. Why? Why is employment better than a handout? Oh, your integrity, your dignity, your self-worth, exactly right. Uh, the, 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 the law of restoration we talked about earlier. God wants people to be industrious, to develop their capacities and their abilities. And if they don't exercise those abilities, they will lose those abilities. And He wants us to offer meaningful employment to people who are in need of a job and so forth and so on. Some will, some, continue with the quote. Some will need to be taught to work. Others who work hard and are taxed to the utmost of their abilities to support their families will need special assistance. Ah, so now she noticed noticed this is thoughtful. This person's working hard, doing all they can, but it's not a living wage. They need extra help. And then uh, one page later, page 285. Some of you are going to be uncomfortable with this, and I apologize. (laughs) Methods of helping the needy should be carefully and prayerfully considered. We are to seek God for wisdom, for he knows better than short-sighted mortals how to care for the creatures he has made. There are some who give indiscriminately to everyone who solicits their aid. In this they err. In trying to help the needy, we should be careful to give them the right kind of help. There are those who, when helped, will continue to make themselves special objects of need. They will be dependent as long as they see anything on which to depend. By giving undue time and attention to these, we may encourage idleness, helplessness, extravagance, and intemperance. When we give to the poor, we should consider, am I encouraging prodigality? Prodigality, that's a word you use a lot, isn't it? Its root is prodigal, like the prodigal son. It means wasteful, squandering one's resources and abilities. That's what prodigality means. You can use that this week somewhere. (laughs) Am I encouraging wastefulness? Am I helping or injuring them? No man who can earn his own livelihood has a right to depend on others. Uh Uh-oh, guys. This is clearly, clearly wrong. We know that the modern era of the 21st century, that the wealthy should just Pour their wealth upon those who are not wealthy and give them everything. Do you understand that God is, is primarily concerned with people developing character that's godly for them overcoming the fear and the selfishness in their heart? And sometimes, and I will tell you, this is a, a kind of a little phrase we learned in, in residency, that pain is fertilizer for the soul. The Bible describes it as we rejoice in our trials and tribulations because they build character. Sometimes it's a difficult time. You think in your own journey, when was it that you grew the most in God? When was it you spent the most time on your knees? When was it that you did the most heart-searching? Was it the time of greatest prosperity or was it the time when you were struggling with something in your life? God doesn't bring adversity upon people, but he allows us to struggle in some of these adversities for the same reason yet your physical therapist adds weight When you go to a physical therapist or to a gym and a trainer, they don't give you one-pound weights to start with. You can all lift one pound. And if you're only given one pound, you will not grow. They add weight, and it's hard. You go, oh, that hurts. That's painful. No pain, no no gain. But after you lift those weights and you come back after two weeks, it goes, this is easy. What do they do? Are you against me? Are you trying to ruin me? Are you trying to push me down? Why are you putting more weight on me? Well, this isn't just about muscles, it's about character. It's about growing in confidence, about growing in your wisdom and your decision-making, your ability to tolerate stress. Difficulties come. God wants you to grow. So you can stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and the lion's den. You will not get, we will not, I will not get to a place like that if I haven't had some tribulations and trials to fall on my knees and trust the Lord through prior to days like that. That also gives us a purpose to connect with other people as well. Yes. You know, if, if I've gone through transportation problems and child care problems and overcame it, then I can help somebody else and they to face the same thing. You, you develop skills, wisdom, problem-solving abilities. Exactly. Monday's lesson talks about Dorcas. Just a couple points I'm going to make. She died. Very, uh, grie- the, the community was very grieved. Called Peter. Peter prays. God resurrects her. You know the story. Brilliant. Beautiful story. Powerful story. Moving story. Uh, who was the uh, miracle for? The miracle of resurrection. Was it for Dorcas? Get your the miracle was not for Dorcas. It was for the community. It was for all of us who've read about it since then. But it wasn't for Dorcas. Put yourself in Dorcas use You've run the you've run the good race. You finished the fight. You've crossed the line. You're at peace. You're at rest. No more sin to be tempted with. No more pain. No more agonies. No more trials. No more suffering. No more heartache of seeing loved ones beaten up by the Romans, persecuted and killed. You're at peace. Oh, but somebody just woke you back up to go through it all again. (laughs) Thank you, God. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Have you ever considered that? I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. Dorcas was not raised in a heavenly body in a new earth. She was raised in a sinful world with a body that was still subject to all the aches and pains and diseases and illnesses and sicknesses and the heartaches and the struggles and the stressors and the problems of life. Have you ever considered if you passed or your loved one passes, would you really want to call them back? Have you considered that? Maybe if you thought they hadn't accepted the Lord, you'd want to call them back to give them another chance. But Dorcas was clearly at peace with the Lord. She was going to be in a flash. Boom, boom, the Lord's here. New heaven, new earth. Oh, man. But she must have been such a friend of God, really. Such a friend of God that she wasn't disappointed. Well, Lord, if you you have more for me to do here, thank you for the privilege of serving. Thank you, Lord. Wednesday's lesson Paul's letter to the Romans Uh, I think I'm going to jump ahead and skip Wednesday there's some stuff in there well we're going to get to the later in the Wednesday let's go to the third paragraph on Wednesday third paragraph says Paul describes in practical terms that uh, this kind of life what this kind of life is about and it talks about practicality of living and so forth um, and applying these things in your community um what is a Jesus-like response to the uh, injustice in society today? What is the danger to the, quote, social justice, unquote, movement? The danger is trying to promote good goals, godly goals, with Satan's methods. You can't change hearts with legislation. You can't instill love by coercive punishment. Good goal. Social justice, good goal. What methods are people employing? This is the problem with the social justice movement. It seeks to fix social injustices by passing laws, forcing people to comply with their standard of social justice rather than converting people to love others. The method of compelling actually incites greater division in society because it always disadvantages someone for the advantage of someone else. That's what it always does. It always disadvantages one group to advantage the current special group. You That's exactly right. Social justice uh, uh, legislations or policies always advance one group at the expense of another, creating social injustice. It always does. But we are conditioned in the society to accept the standard view and not protest lest you're labeled as an intolerant bigot or racist. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream that his daughters would grow up in a country where they were judged by the quality of their character. That's a biblical principle. Not the color of their skin. Biblical principle. Quality of character. Social justice movement ignores this and advances policies where businesses are awarded government contracts on a preferential basis if they're owned by a minority group or a woman. It doesn't matter if the business character has demonstrated a history of honesty, integrity, coming in under the bid and saving money, uh, coming in before the due date and, and saving time. It doesn't really matter. Character is not important. It's minority status that gets you the award. This is the social justice movement, creating social injustice. The goal is good. People have been disadvantaged. We want to make people have equal opportunity. So the goal is good to do away with injustice. The problem is they can never do away with injustice by passing laws to do away with it because it always creates further injustice. I'm going to get a lot of emails this week. (laughs) The godly social justice only occurs when we love people as equals and value godly character and advance godly principles. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We have to have new hearts and right spirits. Treating each other as family and friends. This transformation is obstructed by the social justice movement as many good people will divert their energies into policy and legislative actions rather than ministering love to their neighbor and seeking to love others as yourself. Seeks a good cause, social justice movement, a good cause, equality of all people, but it uses imperial methods. It'd be like the doctors who were trying to cure George Washington of his pneumonia. Good cause, let's, let's save his life but they leached and bled half of his blood supply. Bad method. Bad method. Good cause. Good goal. Bad method. And this is what's happening in society. This is why Jesus and the apostles did not seek social justice changes of the Roman government. Despite slavery, despite rampant child abuse, trafficking, killing people in the arenas, they sought to change the hearts of people, and in so doing, society changed. Their refusal to seek government change, to, um, to, uh, to, to seek to change the government socially, was not an endorsement of the abuse. Just because they didn't go for governmental changes did not mean they endorsed all the abuse. They did not. They were opposed. The gospel message is opposed to abuse. And we love our neighbors. We love our enemies. Some people say, if you say that, that this, then you're, then you're supporting the exploitation of innocent people. No, you're not. You're absolutely opposed to it. It's about the methods one employs to achieve the goal. And I'm going to tell you, I'll say this, I've said it before, you cannot win God's cause using Satan's methods. And this is one of the tricks of the devil at the end of time. He's going to come forward with a good cause. Worship God. Good cause. Worship God. But if you don't, we're going to imprison you. Bad method. Selfishness in the heart can never be resolved through coercive and legislative measures. Can never. Does this mean we don't seek to pass laws in our societies where we have the influence to influence laws that are harmony that that are more in harmony with God's principles? Does that mean we don't we don't tempt to? And when we have that, no, of course we put godly principles to bear when we have the option to do so, but we recognize the limitations of those principles and we don't cross the line of violating individual conscience. That's why the Bible teaches every person to be fully persuaded in their own mind and that we are to not conform to the pattern of this world but by be renewed in the renewing of your mind. The uh, lesson on Thursday is about James and about what James taught. James taught that faith without works is dead. Did you know that Martin Luther, the great reformer, thought that the book of James, Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation, he could not find Christ in these books, and he thought they shouldn't be included in Scripture. And so in the German Bibles, even today, those four books are at the back of the Bible. Because he didn't think they should be included in Scripture. I cannot find Christ in these books, he said. Why do you think Luther had a problem with these books? Because Luther created a legal fiction known as penal substitution theology. And in this fiction, remember, fiction is something feigned or imaginary or invented, not reality. And penal substitution theology is fiction. It's not reality. In this fiction, God's law functions like human law. That's not reality. That's fiction. Imperial rules requiring enforced or external punishment. Fiction. Sin, then, in this fiction, is breaking the imposed rules. Uh, putting sinners in legal jeopardy with the ruling authority. God's justice in this fiction requires a sinner to be punished in order to uphold the law. God must therefore inflict the punishment upon sinners. Jesus came as man's substitute, and all sin of all people from all time was placed on Jesus, and God punished Jesus, killing Jesus on the cross, in our place as our substitute in this fictional worldview. Legally, then, the punishment of all the sins was accomplished in Jesus at the cross. So, here's the point for Luther, the big one. There's no unpunished sins left to be purged in purgatory. The whole goal of the fiction was to get rid of purgatory. So there's no unpunished sins left because they've all been punished in Jesus, so no purgatory. The saved merely have to accept Jesus, claim his blood payment, and in the courts of heaven they are declared to be legally righteous even though they're still unrighteous on earth. That's penal substitution theology. It's fiction. But it's taught as reality in most Christianity today. Protestant Christianity. Why is it fiction? Because it's all based on a lie that God's law functions like human law. But the truth is that God is the creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built to operate. Sin is transgression or taking oneself out of harmony with the law and thus the wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. So the Bible is very consistent with itself. When you break the laws upon which reality are built, you die because life doesn't exist there. Thus, Christ came in order to restore us back into harmony with God's law, to put our law in the heart and mind, so that we can live in harmony with God and have life again. He did this for the species human in his person as a human, the second Adam. The species human was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. See, as long as we have one panda bear or panda alive, pandas are not extinct Because of Jesus Christ, the human species was saved and will never be extinct. But he also procured the remedy for any other specimens of the species who trust him, we can receive the remedy, and we can also join him. Can God save a person without that person's cooperation and purposeful choice? The the quotation from, from, uh, you see, um, one of the problems Luther had with James was James said, um, uh, faith without works is dead. Luther's fiction was it's all solo gratis, meaning it's completely based on grace. We're saved by grace and grace alone through faith. There's no work that we apply. So we claim the faith... In Christ, his grace then makes a legal adjustment in heaven because God is gracious accepting the blood payment of Jesus on our behalf and thus that grace legally moves us from the the condemned ledger onto the uh, life eternal ledger and we have life. That's uh, uh, totally based on the payment of Jesus, sola gratis. Grace and grace alone. But James said, your faith without works is dead. So he is viewing this as adding works, that our works are somehow required in order for us to have salvation. This goes again, the argument, this is back to the argument between Catholicism, which it's not just the grace of God, it's also the sacraments and the works you have to do, added to the grace of God in order for you to have salvation, and that's rejected by Protestant Christianity. The problem with both of their arguments are, they're both arguing in the wrong ballpark. They're arguing both. Both groups, Catholics and Protestants, are arguing in the landscape of imposed law. Once you get back to the truth that God's laws are the laws upon which reality are built, the entire systems of both are evaporated away and we come back to how reality works. Christ achieved, singly and alone in his person, the salvation of the species human. As, not, as Ellen White says in Christ's object lessons, in the uh, robe of his righteousness, there's not one thread of human devising. He achieved this by himself. But having ach- And so you think of this as achieving remedy. But having achieved the remedy, offering it freely to us, requires our participation to experience the remedy. Now our participation in this, our work to join him does not procure it, develop it, isolate it, etc. It just participates in it. Solomon writes, writes beautiful things like this in My Character Personality Volume 2, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds up one with the other, uh, uh, one another and with God. The apostle says, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry, God's building. Man is to work with the facilities God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to do and good and, and both to, uh, to will and to do, uh, of his good pleasure. And then our high calling, page 310 there are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul it requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies divine influences and a strong living working faith it is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God the Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind stupid credulity meaning well God said it I believe it that settles it and I just take that on faith <laughs> no no He does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. Why? Understand how reality works. Can any human being be saved without Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. And the species cannot be saved without Jesus. Jesus did what no human being could do. He saved the species in this person and he provides the remedy. But can God save any person without their cooperation? Why? Doesn't he have the power to reach in and rewrite everything into perfection? Doesn't he have the power to do that? Mm -hmm. Yes, but if he did that without your cooperation, what happens to you? You cease to exist. He erases your individuality. Your personal identity is gone. So he has the power to overwrite you. But then you don't exist anymore. The only way to save you while keeping you you is for your voluntary understanding, agreement, participation, and choosing in faith the truth as it is in Jesus. Then you're persuaded in your own mind, and you become transformed by the indwelling Spirit leading you. That's the only way to retain you. You see, God can create sinless beings like he did Adam and Eve and the angels. He cannot create character character has to be developed by the individual choices. We can't create sinless character, but we can choose to participate, identify, and accept all the character attributes of Christ dwelling in us. Identify, yes, I love that, Jesus. I love your honesty. I love your integrity. And I choose to align with that. Help me to be more honest and more a person of integrity. I love the fact you didn't let fear dominate you. And you didn't choose the path of fear to save yourself. Lord, help me make love-based decisions, not fear-based decisions. And we start identifying with and we get the dwelling spirit who enlightens our mind with truth and love. And we start making those types of decisions, receiving it from Christ through the spirit, but choosing to embrace and identify with. Thus, we are working out our own salvation, not developing the remedy, partaking of the remedy. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God of love who built all reality to operate in harmony with your own nature and principles. Lord, we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. It wasn't our fault we were this way. And and you know that and thank you for your grace and thank you for Jesus for achieving what we never could achieve and we ask for your spirit to take his victories the truth and love and perfection of Christ and and enlighten us to it draw us for it and as we choose it then fill us with your spirit writing your law your methods your principles your character on our hearts and minds that we can be effective in communicating this truth to a world in darkness and practicing your principles of loving our neighbors and not getting caught into the methods of the world being contaminated by the worldly methods Lord We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.